The following podcast is a presentation of Project Entertainment Network. Welcome to the Sample Chapter Podcast, the show where authors read a sample chapter from one of their books. Here's your host, Jason A. Meiske. Greetings, my friends, and welcome to episode 107 of the Sample Chapter Podcast, the show where authors read a sample chapter from one of their books. Hey, don't forget to follow the show on our social media pages, Facebook and Twitter. We're listed as the Sample Chapter Podcast, so very easy to follow there. And every episode is also over on YouTube, so you can check that out. Hit the little bell so you can follow it there. Or, of course, this is a podcast after all, so click the subscribe button on whatever your favorite podcast player is. We're on all of them, I believe, at this point. (laughs) We're everywhere. So wherever that is, don't forget to hit that subscribe button and give me some feedback. If you like what you hear, if you've enjoyed a particular episode, make sure to give me some feedback. I love hearing from all of you all over the world. You can reach out to me at samplechapterpodcast at gmail.com. Hey, I do have one announcement I want to make real quick before we get going. Later this month, March 20th to the 22nd, I will be joining Joey Mills of Pop Goes the Culture Network at Planet Comic Con. Joey's actually going to be there as a panelist and doing things all weekend long. So if you like Pop Goes the Culture Network, then get on over there and check things out. Lots of cool things going on all weekend. Not to mention all the celebrities. I mean, they got the cast of... The Karate Kid is going to be there. The cast of Stranger Things. uh, Several of the members of Stranger Things is going to be there. And, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. They just announced Adam Savage of Mythbusters is going to be there as well. There's going to be a lot of people. It's going to be a lot of fun. And, like, you know, I went last year for one day, and I came home with, like, 50 uh, different authors' cards, several of which have been guests on the show since then. It's going to be a great weekend. It always is a lot of fun, but... Sunday, the 22nd in particular, I will be there with Joey. We're going to be on a panel for creator-owned content. And we're going to be answering questions about creating and marketing your own content in a digital age, whether that be podcasts, novels, comics, or whatever that is. I'm going to make sure to share a link so you can check it out. And as it gets closer, I'll share more information. And um, yeah, I'm looking uh, looking forward to doing this. It's going to be a lot of fun. And who knows, maybe between now and then I can get a little bit of swag put together to toss out in the crowd. If if you show up and you tell me you heard this ad, I will definitely throw something at you. And hopefully it's something that you like, something that you want. <laughs> well, hey, speaking of Joey, I want to thank him and his network, Pop Goes the Culture Network. You know, they have about, I think there's at least seven other shows on the network. But it's not just podcasts, it's also blogs and movie reviews, uh, gaming and wrestling, all kinds of stuff. You know, anything pop culture related, it's all in there. Uh, Plus, they share every episode of my show as well. So make sure you click the link in the show notes so you can get over there and see what else they got going on. So while I'm at it, I'm going to go ahead and thank our sponsors, Scrivener, which is the absolute greatest writing software there is. Uh, I use it every day. I highly recommend it. And, you know, I don't really have a whole lot of time to go into it too much today. So stay tuned for a commercial from them here in just a moment. Just suffice to say, it's it, it lives up to its name as the best writing software. 
I believe in it, and I know if you try it out for a while, you're going to believe in it too. I also want to thank our longtime sponsor, U-Store-All, out of Warrensburg, Missouri. If you are needing some kind of self-storage, you know, clean out the garage, maybe you're moving, maybe you got to make some room for the summer, then look no further than U-Store-All. Check them out online at ustoreall.net. You can see everything they have to offer you know, between their two facilities, climate control and non-climate control, fully fenced in and gated with your own private gate code, more than 60 cameras recording 24 hours a day, amazing stuff, and so much more. So check them out at ustoreall.net. That is spelled the letter U-S-T-O-R-A-L-L.net. And of course, I'm going to thank Project Entertainment Network, uh, that's the other network that I, this show is now a part of. It's a great network, and I think there's 20-some shows. Um, maybe half of them are author-related or some kind of writing-related, at least that many, or, or reading-related, for that matter. There is the Lunch Ladies podcast where they review books. That's a really cool one. But so many good things to hear from, so make sure you uh, click the link in the show notes for them. And uh, you can see what else they have to offer, like this show. This is Jim Adams from Monster Attack. Hey, if you remember that monster movie from your childhood that got it all started for you, the one that really got you interested in monster movies, horror movies, sci-fis, and cult films, then you're going to want to listen every week to Monster Attack. We look at some of our favorite monster movies from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. With new episodes uploaded every Monday, it's Monster Attack exclusively on the Project Entertainment Network. All right, our guest this week is Patrick Attaway. He's a very talented guy from Georgia. He's a musician, writes and makes his own music. He's also a poet with several books of poetry already available out there. And he just recently, in, in February, added his very first fiction novel to his collection of achievements. The guy is really something, and I had a blast talking with him. Plus, I really admire his determination that he will take whatever time is needed to fix or rewrite his story. And I, I think that's really amazing. You know, in this world of hurry up and do it now, that's a cool thing. That's a good headspace to have, that he's going to take the time needed to make sure that it's the way it needs to be. Now, you know, I mentioned that Patrick is also a musician. And what's really cool is this is one of those opportunities where Patrick didn't read the chapter for me over the air. He actually recorded it in his own home studio. So you're going to get incredible, high-quality reading from Patrick, and it, it's awesome. So, you know, it, it's a great conversation and one that I can't wait to get you to right after a word from Scrivener. Jason here. Hey, I wanted to take a moment and tell you about my favorite writing tool, Scrivener. Now, I know you've heard about Scrivener because their writing software has been embraced by hundreds of thousands of other writers like you and I, from the novice to best-selling novelists. The reason we all use it is because of Scrivener's core concept to bring all the writing tools you use together in a single application. And with tools like automatic backup, character maps, project goals, and let's not forget that amazing corkboard, you can see why I use Scrivener every day. As a bonus for Sample Chapter Podcast listeners, use code CHAPTER for 20% off your desktop version. Scrivener Writing Software, built by writers for writers. 
Hello, my friends. Welcome to another episode of the Sample Chapter Podcast. This week, we're heading on down to Georgia to speak with poet and speculative fiction author Patrick Attaway. Patrick, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Jason. <laughs> I'm so happy to have you here. This is exciting. It's uh, I don't get as many poets on here as I would like, so this is uh, this is exciting. Well, I didn't say I wrote good poetry. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. It's got to be better than anything I've written so far, and I I don't think I have written a poem since like third grade. I'm sure there's a third grader out there who does much better than me, but thank you. <laughs> Well, tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, uh, I've lived in the same small town my entire life, about an hour outside of Atlanta. And I started writing because uh, in the second grade, my teacher had, she set aside 30 minutes for us to write every day. And we had our own binders. And I had the same teacher for third grade, so that continued. And then our fourth grade teacher had the same thing. I don't know if it was like a school-wide initiative or something but by the time I got to the fourth grade and I was 10 I was like I want to do this for a living <laughs> and I, I guess that's where it all started but, but I didn't really start taking it seriously until maybe high school and I started writing this novel Demise of the, of the Trinity in 2010 when I was still a senior in high school so it took me about nine years to finish it okay well you know and that's something that it's very common. Uh, it was that, that happened to me and a lot of the other authors that uh, have been on. It's it's that first book. Um, I, I don't know. It's like getting it right, getting it the way we want it, and getting the getting the story to come out first. I think right. it's been a was a big challenge. Did you find that true as well? Oh yeah, uh, trying to find a plot at all was uh, difficult, well, especially since the uh, the most of the books that I, I read and really enjoy don't don't really have much of a plot. Uh, I come from sort of this background of Brett Easton Ellis and Charles Bukowski with some Vonnegut thrown in, and uh, plot always comes secondary to the characters and their experiences in those books. And this book started out as sort of a collection of short stories that. Over the years, I transformed into more of a series of character studies that follows a similar storyline. Okay. Yeah. Well, this sounds really, really interesting, and I can't wait to get back to this. But let's circle back a little bit. So you've also got quite the collection of poetry books, though, that you have put out previous to this. What was your first poetry book? The first one was Cornbread Poetry, and that was released in 2017. I used to be in this online community called Digital Verse, which is now offline. And one of the reasons why I decided to put the book together was because no one was going to be able to read my poetry anymore. And I was really happy with that site because it allowed thousands of people to be able to read my poetry. And for it to leave was so heartbreaking, but it gave me the courage to put it all together, my most popular poems, and put them into a book. And after that, I wasn't expecting to do anything else. I, I didn't have any plans to put out a second book. And, you know, the next year I, I put out my second book with short stories and um, poems. Wow. OK. So now I know that you're also a musician. Uh, do you think that's where some of the poetry comes from is your love of music? Oh, yeah. Um started writing lyrics when I was 11, and eventually the lyrics got so complicated that I couldn't sing them anymore. 
Now, that doesn't mean that I started writing great poetry right off the bat because <laughs> the first couple of years was pretty shaky. In fact, I recently went back and read a lot of the poems that I was submitting in my advanced poetry writing class when I was an undergrad, and a lot of it's pretty bad. So uh, the, the fact that I, I, I started writing anything readable at all is probably because I was a part of that poetry community, but um, also just trial and error, really. Oh, that's great though to have that community. That that's what uh, when I got serious about writing, uh, that's what I did was I reached out and found out that I had a local writing community right here where I lived that I had no idea about. I'd been here for like I don't know three or four years and didn't know anything about it, and all of a sudden, oh, there they are, and I started going regularly. And uh, next thing you know, I've I finally finished the book, and it, just having that community of like-minded people was huge for me. Yeah, it certainly helped in my case. I, I didn't show a whole lot of my fiction to other people. I, I was involved in creative writing classes, and I had some of that, but um, I, I was really shy about showing off my writing. Oh, sure. Yeah, no, I get, I totally get that. But, uh, you know, in that time, I mean, 2017, and I mean, I can see here, what is this, five, at least five other books of poetry? How many do you have now? Uh, there are six books of poetry. Now, the fifth book of poetry is all of the poetry from the first four books put together. Ah. So, yeah. Okay. Which one is that one? That is, oh, gosh, I'm forgetting the title. It has my wife on the cover, uh, a baby picture of her, uh, something negative. All, all of my, for my poetry. Yeah, Glutton for Despair. That would be the one. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I was just pulling that one up and was looking at that. That's cute. <laughs> so where do you find that your poetry comes from? Do you Is it events in life or just a sudden inspiration? Or do you sit down and try to make something work? It's a little bit of all the above. But um, the early poetry was very much driven by those um, late teenage, early 20s hormones <laughs> and uh, so many of those early ones are they're just terrible because of that. And then eventually I would actually write a lot about the process of writing and I would write about music in my poetry. I'd write about writing in my poetry. And within the past couple of years, I've tried to, to put a little bit more narrative in it. Um, and I've also been reflecting a lot on the past. And I just recently started writing a bit more about my, my parents, which I'd never thought I would do. So it, it's a little bit of everything. And I, I do write about my wife a lot, too. Um, she tends to not read anything that I, I write, but I, I really like to write about her anyway. <laughs> kind of gives you a little bit of a free pass that way you can say what you need to, but I'm sure it's all lovely, right? Yeah, for the most part, yeah. <laughs> yeah, my, my wife, on the other hand, she was my she's always my first reader. And she's tough, man. I mean, she's she'll read something. What kind of crap is this? What did you put? What? Why would you have them do this? So, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's thankfully I've grown some thick skin. I'm like, it's just what I need. So, but uh, I, I get to laugh at uh, her uh, her criticisms. And I guess I'd rather have it from her than uh, than a stranger. <laughs> oh, definitely, yes. So, all right. So you got all this poetry, and then. I, I guess you had the file somewhere tucked away for Demise of the Trinity. And what what drove you to get back to this? Well, I've been working on it 
uh, all these years. Um, I've been going back and forth between this and my second novel that I'm either going to release later this year or early, early next year, Price of the, of the Trinity. And uh, I had been working with a beta reader, and she made suggestions based on uh, things that she thought would be better if I changed. So the novel is divided in two parts, and I ended up rewriting the, in second, the entire second part of it in the summer of 2019. So uh, I'm not really above changing things, and I'm certainly not above just starting over from scratch when it comes to rewriting. So uh, that's that's really why it takes me a long time is, is because I'm so critical of myself and so willing to just start over and rewrite everything. Oh, wow. But that's great, though. I mean, that's a that's a good step to have up front, you know, when you're working on this this uh, book of fiction and the ability to go back and fix what needs to be fixed. Is, it's going to help you in the long run, I think. So that way, over time, that process will get shorter and shorter. Hopefully, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what I believe. I mean, my first one was seven years. Second one, uh, I finished it in April last year. And then same thing. I've just been editing and then tying up loose ends and looking at, I have all these little things going in different directions. I'm just trying to get it all tied up. And oh, I'd hoped it would have been out in the fall, but I don't know, but still, I mean, it's, I can still say, oh yeah, it's still my quickest book so far. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not another seven years. So tell us about what is the, uh, what is the story about? Well, it's this really weird sort of, uh, I've always tried to create analogies for it. You know, what if Kurt Vonnegut or Brady Stanellis rewrote Paradise Lost, but that, that's not entirely accurate. Someone on Amazon re- described it as several different noir stories pieced together. Uh, but it all originates from Lucifer and this tragic figure because every time he tries to wage war against God, uh, he ends up losing. And that's something that I took from a lot of the stuff that I read as an undergrad in college, like Faustus and Paradise Lost and even Dr. Faustus is – He's really this this guy who just can't win. And so he decides to come up with a plan, a series of plans that will all fail because he intends them to fail. So he has all these different plan B's. And ultimately, um, he succeeds, but he really didn't need to succeed at all because mankind was just going to devour itself one way or another. Because uh, as displayed through my characters, they're all very selfish and destructive and each chapter is sort of a different character study until you get to part two and that's when things really kick off and uh go into high gear wow man well that sounds that sounds amazing and and you've got a sequel to this you're working on right now you said well it's not a sequel um i actually finished it before i finished this book i finished it in 2018 and i've made some edits um, because of a beta reader, but uh, it's done. It's called Price of the, of the Trinity, and it's it takes place in 2010, which is right in the middle of when this novel takes place. Oh. And it tells the story of a character from Demise. His name is Ken Price, and he goes off to college and tries to defy his father, who is a serial killer. And uh, he's sort of been... Uh, 
molded to be almost like an antichrist his entire life and he rejects that but the the thing about him is that he's kind of chaotic because he rejects both good and evil so he's just destructive oh wow okay uh, the the big question then i'm sure everybody's wondering then do you have a, a timeline for when that one will come out uh hopefully i want to pace these things out but um either later this year or early next year i've already got a cup of her worked out uh posted that on twitter and got everyone's input on which one they liked and uh, it's really just a matter of when uh everything for demise ramps down and i can start promoting this one awesome all right that's really cool man you'll have to let us know when that comes out so we can uh, make sure and tell everybody about this absolutely well, so we're going to be heading over to your reading here in a moment. What uh, what can we expect from this scene? Is this like right at the beginning, or is it a different chapter further in? I tried to find a, uh, a, a something that was palatable for more audiences. <laughs> so I went in a few chapters, and this is from the perspective of a character named Veronica and how she meets uh, the sort of the hero of the novel. His name is Birch and their relationship. Okay. Very cool. Well, this is awesome, man. I, I can't wait to hear about it. Uh, tell the audience where they can find and follow you. Well, I'm on Twitter as Patrick Attaway with an extra little Y at the end. <laughs> and all of my books are available on Amazon. Just search for Patrick Attaway. Yeah, and I'm excited, too, because I'm a big Kindle Unlimited fan, and I see, like, pretty much all, most of these are all uh, Kindle Unlimited. So I know... Uh, I've got more books to be added to my wish list now. Awesome. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again, Patrick. This has been thank a you. lot of fun. And, uh, man, I, I, I can't wait to hear about this. So, ladies and gentlemen, without any further ado, Patrick Attaway with The Demise of the Trinity. Veronica. Lucifer holds my son, Alan, as Murray pulls out my few belongings and forces him into a duffel bag. The baby sleeps without disturbance in the arms of evil, and I hope to never see that little bastard again. Last night, someone murdered my grandfather, Walter, and Murray woke me up to leave because we're all apparently in danger. I haven't felt safe since I met Lucifer. I raised him, Lucifer says. This man who fears for your life. If I hadn't failed in rearing him, you wouldn't care if you lived or died. You wouldn't be here. Then you wouldn't be holding your son, I say. You're welcome for that. Grabbing my arm, Murray pulls me through the house. Lucifer imprisoned me in while Alan grew inside me. He wouldn't let me leave until today. Otherwise, I had anything I wanted to eat, could sleep in into the afternoon, had high-speed internet access, and there was a 75-inch TV in the living room. And Murray personalized a bookcase for me to explore when I grew too bored of television. If I had a life outside of Lucifer's seed, it wouldn't feel like I was leaving a cell. There's a black Suzuki Kazashi in the garage, which Murray throws the duffel bag inside and presses the keys into my palm. He's my father, and I think he cares for me, yet I don't see him as anything but a prison guard. 
with his lips curling under his teeth, he touches my cheek, and those blue eyes begin to water as if he's a suburban dad seeing his daughter leave for college. I'm sorry, he says. You have a chance to do whatever you want now. Just get out of Georgia and don't let anyone know your real name. You don't have to see me ever again. I know you don't love your son, but I'm going to take care of him. Thank you, I manage. Once I'm in the Suzuki, I watch Murray linger as he sees me reverse out of the garage. When I look at him, I see someone who murdered a lot of people for the sake of evil. Yet he's able to feel sorrow and remorse, and that's what disappoints Lucifer. Murray is half-human, but there are full-blooded men who are more monstrous than him. The notion that I'm in danger doesn't matter because my life until this point is not a tale of pleasure or greatness. If someone came after me, I'd wonder why they'd waste my death. I'm not important enough to die yet. Heading north on I-85, I'm going to drive north until I either run out of gas or find a place I want to stop. I've never left the state before today. My mom kept me confined to our county, so anywhere but here means something I haven't experienced. When I get there, I can dye my hair, buy a new wardrobe, and rent an apartment until I figure out my identity. I haven't had one before. When you drive long distances, people are all trying to get somewhere. And it's often more interesting to consider where the car next to you is headed. Where does that person live? If they're going home, what will they do once they're inside their house? Maybe they're leaving home. And if so, why? A woman with blue hair and tattoos driving a chipped green Toyota isn't anxious to meet her husband and children in a suburban home and two-door garage, a green sod lawn, and a rose garden in the backyard. She's going to unlock her apartment door, ignore the smell of her litter box, put off doing her dishes another night, and pass out on her unmade bed with an outdated Dell laptop streaming American Horror Story. What category do I want to enter? The lonely eccentric or family-oriented housewife? Surely there are more genres to explore in life than what I saw on television, because all I know is barely getting by with all the spare money spent on drugs. Maybe the city isn't for me, though. I don't see myself inhabiting the wilderness in a one-room cabin. I can't figure what makes sense for myself because I only understand misery. By nightfall, I'm in Pennsylvania. I park at a McDonald's to figure out what I can afford. Surely Murray didn't send me off with a car, clothes, and no money. There's a briefcase next to my duffel bag, and of course there's cash inside. Benjamin Franklin looks at me with this judgmental glare over and over. A note taped to the top says, The debit card enclosed is connected to your new account. Have a nice life. Signed, Murray. Maybe giving birth to Satan Spawn was worth the nine months of gaining weight and sitting on my ass. He even claimed I'll have a comfortable eternity in hell for my service. The reminder that I am blood-related to a fallen angel who damns souls to an inflamed pit doesn't overwhelm me. Instead, I am comforted to know that I don't have to work for heaven. People pray every day, go to church each Sunday, give charity, help those in need, and they're not guaranteed paradise after death. According to God's law, a murderer can enter his kingdom if the sinner repents. 
but that's not for mankind to judge. Murray told me about the Trinity, which bewilders me the most. God allows three people to not only escape death, but they can sin as they please and still go to heaven. Murray claims they possess free will like all humans, so they're supposed to find God and repent in their own way. I never met my cousin Kim, but Murray frightened me into never wanting to. I'm not sure if he's the one who wants to kill me or not. Surely there's a good man out there worthy of such power, and he'll unironically die before he achieves his potential. I don't want to fathom what Alan is capable of, but I know Lucifer didn't impregnate me because he wanted a kid. Because I share his blood, I was the only woman capable of bearing his child. That really fucks with my head. I only exist because of the devil. Does that mean my purpose is to serve him? With this money, maybe I'll find a different meaning in my existence. I spend the night in a hotel in Philadelphia. When I wake up, I lie in the white sheets and stare at the ceramic ceiling with my mind blanking. There's nothing for me to do here, yet there's nothing I want to do. Looking out at the traffic below me, I see people with purpose. They're all headed somewhere, and I feel like I'm nowhere. A hair salon turns on a neon open sign that catches my eye. I was thinking about a new identity. The woman driving next to me with blue hair, and where I'd call home. Maybe it all begins with a fresh look in the mirror, because my reflection only offers a reminder of my torment. The stylist pulls out a catalog of different haircuts, and the models look like they're in the Matrix with spiked blood-red hair and green mohawks. The women with practical hairstyles possess natural beauty, while the extreme ones definitely learned how to use makeup to mask their average faces. If I'm assessing myself as harshly, I'm definitely not a model. With tangled, dirty, blonde hair that reaches my ass, I resemble a captive white woman who escaped a Native American's tribe torture in a South American jungle, only to find herself alienated against common society. The stylist might as well accept me as a rejected marble block to craft what she's able to with such poor material. With her little hand shampooing my head, the Asian woman speaks to her co-workers in another language. They could talk in English, and I wouldn't know what they were saying. What do normal people talk about? Tal drawing my scalp, she brushes through the mess my mom bequeathed me before taking scissors to Cousin It's granddaughter. When I open my eyes, I see the same girl looking th- back through the mirror, but her hair is neck level and doesn't resemble the blonde and brown vines once there. Did you decide on a color, the stylist asked. What's something practical that won't make me stand out, I ask. Darker or lighter? Darker. After wrapping my hair in aluminum foil and sitting for an hour, I face another sink and hair dryer before seeing what qualifies as darker to this woman. Her eyes begin to shake as her mouth opens slowly until I see why she's so shocked. My hair is a light gray, as if I'm a tumbler model with waist-high jeans and a decorative tank top. I must have grabbed the wrong dye, she begins to apologize. No, I say. You're fine. The few clothes I have are pullovers, jeans, and an old concert t-shirt my mom made me wear. When I was pregnant, 
My belly hung out from under them, and I declined Murray's offers to buy maternity blouses. Why buy tents to cover when they won't fit you in a few weeks? I'm not about to buy a bunch of dresses and cute tops, though. I take an Uber to Target for some plain-colored tank tops, bras that actually fit me, leggings, and blue jean shorts. Shampoo and some Dove soap join the shopping cart. I don't know what else to buy. Maybe a place to live? Finding a place in a day just isn't happening. I never lived on my own without help from an authority figure, so I don't know how to find an apartment. I can afford a hotel room for eternity, I guess, though I need more space and possessions to make myself a home. Inside a coffee shop, I order the most expensive drink, as if that will give me some inspiration. I have the motivation, but none of the knowledge. Functioning outside my childhood terror doesn't make sense, so I see these people with their friends sitting around tiny tables, their frozen sugar and streaming black brews intermingling, and don't spot anyone I relate to. After they leave, they'll go to work or home, and I'll be in a hotel room. A mess of brown locks walks in on a guy with a Japanese man screaming on a shirt. Pushing the hair from his face, he orders a medium chai latte and lays a backpack on a corner table with a window looking out the alley. Pulling out headphones that encapsulate his ears, the loner scrolls through his iPhone and lingers before choosing a song. Even from across the table, I hear the bass pumping. When the barista shouts, Birch, he rises with the headphone cable dangling over his legs while his fingers try to pocket the phone and reel in the input. Awkwardly nodding at the bitch-faced blonde with her hair up, Birch returns to the table and looks over at me. I wouldn't call him handsome. With that lean baby face, he's cute. Despite his inhuman glare and innocent curiosity, he returns my stare. But when I rise to approach him, he returns to the iPhone screen to pretend that he's calm, like Humphrey Bogart lighting up a cigarette over a cheap scotch. Instead, he's more akin to a dog looking down after trying to prove his dominance. Hey, I sit across from him. The headphones collapse around his neck as a smile creeps around the corners of his lips. Though I bet it's more bewilderment than interest. I'm aware that sitting with a stranger isn't socially kosher, yet I assumed my audacity would impress him. I'm Vicky, I say. I heard the barista say your name. It's interesting. With the paper cup in his hand, Birch smells the sweet tea and milk before taking a quick sip. Maybe I'm not pretty enough for him to acknowledge. I thought my gray hair might attract him more than my looks. He sees through the cosmetic mask that covers the hollow personality of someone, I'm sure. What are you listening to, I ask. Peter Gabriel, he says. Melt. I don't know what that is, I admit. What kind of music does he play? Birch sets the latte down and unhooks his headphones from the phone before dropping them in a book bag. I interrupted his time. He didn't come in here for a weird girl to approach him when he paid for that latte, but I wasn't expecting him to walk in when I bought my coffee either. Surely, he sits back, you know who Phil Collins is. Yeah, I say. He sang in Tarzan. He was in a band called Genesis, Birch explains and he originally played the drums until Peter Gabriel left in the mid-70s. His way of telling me what genre Peter Gabriel belongs in is to give me a history lesson. That's better than him walking out 
And I did plead ignorance to myself only a few moments ago. The world is blunt, yet this guy doesn't understand what that word means. You probably know a few of their songs, he says. Did you come over here just to ask me that? Who's on your shirt, I point. Tashiro Maifun, he looks down at the wide-mouthed man. It's a screenshot from Rashomon. Again, I shrug. Nothing I'm aware of. Would you like to watch it, he asks. Clearly you're interested in me. Crossing the street from a parking garage, I look up at the three brown brick towers supported over a gray stone entry level. Air conditioners poke out of the windows and blinds open into gray rooms. Going to a stranger's apartment might perplex me if I wasn't part of Lucifer's lineage. If Murray can take bullets, I'm sure this awkward audio file can't hurt me. Birch opens his door to reveal an open room with bookshelves on each wall containing novels, Blu-ray, CDs, and vinyl LPs. A small kitchen sits on the right-hand corner as I walk in. A 65-inch flat screen sits in front of a leather sofa and coffee table. There's no other furniture. No dining table, chairs, or anything to occupy the empty space. So, Birch sits down the book bag on the floor. It's Vicky, right? Yeah, I nod. Do you want something to drink, he asks. It's a little early for popcorn. What do you have, I ask. Pointing towards the fridge, Birch motions for me to follow as he reveals several 12-packs of Coke, Sprite, Pib, Diet Seagram's, Ginger Ale, Pepsi, and Mountain Dew with condiments lining the shelves on the doors and eggs and baking serving as the only food. I look at him up close for the first time. His eyes are almost black, with stubble on his pale cheeks and I probably give him the dumbest grin. For the first time, I like someone, and he's the closest thing to normal in my life. Leaning in, I pick up a pib and stand back expectantly, because I have no idea if he's going to offer me a glass or reach in for a soda for himself. I thought he was odd in the coffee shop, yet Birch is more normal in a domestic environment than I'll ever be. He grabs a ginger ale and opens the freezer to reach for some ice which he drops into two tall glasses. Have you ever heard the name Akira Kurosawa, he asks. Just assume I don't know anything about movies or music, I say. The only movie I've watched more than once is Alien. Well, he walks to the sofa. You won't be watching that while I'm around. It was my mom's favorite movie, I join him. Was, he turns to the TV. Don't tell me your parents are dead too. Just my mom, I say. I don't really talk to my dad. The lies almost seem true. I spewed out the name Vicky without any forethought. It's sexier than Veronica, and this guy might empathize with my half-truths more than the reality of me murdering my mom. He's never going to meet Murray, either, though he was nonchalant about his own parents' demise. You're not triggered by violence, he reaches for a Blu-ray. Vice versa, I cross my legs. Good. He puts the disc into a PlayStation. I'd make you watch it anyway. A black and white film commences with subtitles firing off under the Japanese title credits. Birch's eyes remain on the screen even as my gaze lingers on him. And the movie begins. I guess there's merit here. Though the movie's so old, I'm having a hard time disengaging from the dated soundtrack and strange editing. Birch's captivation tells me he's either more cultured than me or he doesn't have any human interaction outside of movies. This apartment is dedicated to the arts, yet 
There are no pictures of family or signs of anyone ever cohabitating with him. What happens when the movie ends? Will he drop me off at my motel and we'll never see each other again? Do we date to get to know each other? Is he even romantically interested in me? And when the credits hit the screen, Birch puts the movie up and tiptoes his four fingers around the disc. He doesn't ask what I thought, whatever it is what we just watched. Instead, he returns with another one. So I guess I'm hanging for a while. Are you hungry, he eventually asks. I didn't notice before he asked, but Pib lines my stomach begging for food. I haven't had a pizza or cheeseburger since I lived with Allison. Murray didn't let me have any junk food for the sake of the baby. You don't have to make me anything, I say. I only buy fresh, he says, or get takeout. Are you craving anything? How do I accept without appearing too eager? I am hungry, but I don't want him to think I'm a cow. These stretch marks on my stomach, breast, and legs came from Alan. Certainly not from overeating, which would have been so much better. What do you like on your pizza? Birch pulls out his iPhone. Cheese? I would hope so, he says, but what else, pepperoni? Sure. You know, Birch styles the number, you weren't this way at the coffee shop. Do you not want to stick around? Oh yeah, I slide closer, I really do. Ignoring my gesture, Birch launches into his pizza order. Maybe I need to make my intentions more obvious? First, I need to figure out my intentions. I like this guy, so how do I get him to reciprocate? Strip naked and hope he climbs on top? Maybe a less obvious and crazy move, like putting my hand on his leg, or is that too forward? I like you, I say without thinking. Birch turns his head, eyes shifting up in thought and smiles after a second. Did I just fuck up? I don't see why, he says. So I tried sliding my hand on his shoulder and getting our faces a little closer. You're cute, I say, and you're like me. How are we alike, he asks. Leaning into his ear, I let my breath fall on his neck. He smells like dove soap and a bright cologne that tickles my nose. Because we're not like other people, I whisper. When Birch begins to chuckle, I pull away. But he takes my head and kisses my forehead as his face turns red. Brushing through my hair, he gives me the first sincere smile I've seen in a year. No one is like other people, he says. We're not special snowflakes, Vicky. We're all human. Well, I'm not. I never laugh like he does either. Despite his demure demeanor, Birch possesses human qualities I didn't know existed. Maybe I need to meet more people. After the pizza movies and small talk, Birch doesn't make any further romantic gestures. He appears more interested in the TV. So I need to leave until I figure out what happened today when I followed a stranger to his apartment. This wasn't a waste of time, but there's no indication of a future here. Well, I say, thanks for the pizza and entertainment. Oh, Birch pauses the movie. You want me to drive you home? I'm staying in a hotel, I say. I can take an Uber. Wait, I assumed you were from here. I'm just passing through, I guess. That doesn't sound like you're too sure. I don't know where I want to settle or if I'll keep moving, but here's this guy who took some interest in me despite my reservations. Birch must like me to some degree if I'm here. I do need a place to stay other than a hotel, but he's not an asshole either. 
Are you, Birch says, running from something? No, I say, just running. Then why do you want to leave, you ask? Are you bored? I figured it would save you the awkward part of asking me to leave. Maybe you should get to know me better. A frying sound accompanied with pork greets my senses. As I sit up on the sofa, Birch notices that I'm awake as he cooks breakfast and returns his attention to the frying pan without acknowledging me. Of course, I probably threw him off with my blank stare. In the bathroom, I see my gray hair for the first time since the salon. I feel along the strands of hair that used to reach further down my back. This is Vicky, not Veronica Price. There are two plates of bacon and eggs with two glasses of water and coffee mugs steaming on the table. Birch may not know who I truly am, though neither do I. What I saw in the mirror was an abstraction. Someone I couldn't dream up or draw in a sketchbook while some stranger fucked my mom in the living room. You don't consider yourself a beautiful, unique being that sparks lust in men when your parent breaks a bong on your face only to punch you in the chest for the glass on the carpet. We eat without the TV on or conversation. Either Birch doesn't know how to make small talk like me, or he's in favor of silence. If I'm crafting my personality as I go, how does he arrive at his own? I'm not here to watch a movie anymore, I say. Finishing his eggs, Birch sets down the plate while licking the salt from his lips and cleanses his palate with a chug of water. Looking at the blank screen before us, he doesn't acknowledge me. Instead, he appears lost in another movie with a samurai running around with a sword or gunman taking out a security team. Every day I'm off work, Bert says. I go to that coffee shop. A lot of people do, and I recognize them, but they never even look at me. They're too worried about how the others perceive them. Even the barista doesn't notice I'm there. You were the first person in a year to make eye contact with me, and you were new. He likes to observe people, too. I bet he wonders what their lives lead once they leave that coffee shop, or maybe he already knows. Those headphones he had kept him safe from any potential anomalies that may wander from the hive mind. Yet, when I approached him, Birch put them away and listened to me. So what does that make us, I ask? Friends, Birch says. Best friends. Then tell me who you are, I say. Why, he asks. You're not going to tell me who you really are, Vicky. Maybe that's what he finds unattractive in me. My lies. How honest can I be, though? I can't tell him about Lucifer, Murray, or Alan. That's a year out of my life that I can't forget, nor leave out of my story. Yet he isn't going to believe what I make up. I can't tell you my real name, I say. I can't tell you much. It's not that I'm a liar, I just can't risk it. What can you tell me, he asks. I murdered my mom, I say. That's the lesser of the sins I've committed. Hmm, Birch says. I killed my mom too. It was my dad who saw the worst of me. Look at us with the blood on our hands. We can't wash it off, so at least we can watch it drip onto the hardwood floor. Birch killed one more person than I have, and that doesn't make me fear him. Oddly, I empathize with him more. So, Bert says, like you, I can't say a lot about myself. I don't maintain relationships because it's too dangerous. 
I never know when someone will find me on the job and shoot me in the back. What do you do that's so dangerous, I ask. I'm a thief, he leans back. People contract me to steal information. I'm a crackerjack hacker, but I'm more valuable as someone who can get in and out of places. The most important documents never see a computer screen. They're locked in safes, desks, and file cabinets. What makes you so good at it, I ask. I've never been to prison, Birch says. No one knows who I am when I'm stealing from them. Yet, a lot of people know me because they need me. I broke into a CEO's house once, only to bring that same man information on his rivals who paid me to steal from his home. Neither of them knew. Do you kill people too, I ask? Not since my dad, Bird says, but I haven't had a reason to since. As if he didn't intrigue me enough, Birch pushes me in a grave of lust without having to dig a hole. The only way I know how to break this tension in my spine and heart is to bring him something to feel anxious about. I won't say we're the same, I say, but we're both orphans. Is that why you're attracted to me, Birch asks? We're outsiders? Just as I was about to make a move, Birch turns his head to look away. There's nothing special about being different, he says. Being an outsider doesn't mean anything because that's what an outsider is. It's a miserable existence and I'm tired of people romanticizing it. As soon as you think of yourself as special, you're in the same category as all those girls with blue hair and guys who are feminist until they get into the blue-haired girl's pants. I'm just saying that I like you. Why, he looks at me. Pushing him back, I straddle Birch and place my hand on his throat, my eyes meeting his growing in a fury. Stop questioning it. I press my nose against his. That was Patrick Attaway reading a sample chapter from his new book, Demise of the Trinity. The book is available right now. Click the link in the show notes for the book and to follow Patrick. Don't forget to also click those links for our friends and sponsors alike, whether that is Scribner, Ustural, Project Entertainment, or Pop Goes the Culture. <laughs> and of course, as always, hit that subscribe button so you don't miss out next week when I come back with an all-new author, a new book, and a new sample chapter. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you again real, real soon. This has been a presentation of the Project Entertainment Network.